0: Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here
1: is your host, John Mihaljevic.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great conversation ahead, and it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Chris Bloomstrand, Elliot Turner, and Phil Ordway this week. Each of them has prepared uh, some discussion on uh, an interesting topic. We'll start with Chris, uh, then we'll go to Elliot, and finally, we'll have Phil. Uh, who will do uh, an interesting uh, thought experiment, a, a sort of a quiz that everyone can participate in while listening to the podcast? And I think that's going to be very interesting. So please stay tuned for that. But first, I'll go to Chris.
0: Yeah, thanks, John. Well, in the last, I think we've had some some terrific conversations over the last few weeks, getting this podcast up and running, and we've spent some time on on governance, which has been terrific. I thought what I would do this week is take a company from our portfolio, Starbucks, which we've owned really only since 2018, but I've followed for a lot of years. And, you know, kind of from a portfolio management lens, kind of take a business that's not black and white. And I I think the reality is in investing very little is black and white. So, you know, with Starbucks, you happen to have this collision of, you know, I guess what you'd call evaluation, governance, which we've been talking about, capital allocation, and even business fundamentals. And full disclosure, you know, Starbucks is a big position for us. It's top five um, on the order of 5% of our capital. Like I say, we've owned it since 08. Uh, made a huge mistake of not owning the stock during the financial crisis and uh, the meltdown in 08, 09. The stock traded down to, I think it was four bucks a share. So it traded at you know, less than one year's revenues. At the time, they were doing a nine or 10% profit margin. So it was really cheap. Uh, but everything else was cheap, and so you know, I, I did not jump on what I you know knew to be a business that had a very long growth curve. So sitting here today, you know, with a stock that a business that I still think has a very long growth curve, a, a few things have happened. You know, for, a coming out of the financial crisis, the stock ran straight up, and by I'm going to say 2015 or so, the stock had traded up to about 40 times what the business earns. Which, which was really expensive and then spent three or four years in the penalty box they had some issues with fundamentals uh, they were starting to get cannibalization in various of their North American markets to a degree although I still think the business can grow uh, units in the United States and North America uh, at, at a decent clip over time and we can talk about that but you know the stock traded sideways the business continued to grow and you know we were able to come in and, and you know, buy a fair position and it was a case you know we talked about um, you know, the process of putting capital to work and position sizing, you know, we came in with a big position right out of the gate paid a little under 50 bucks a share. And here we are today with the stock trading at $88. And so we're back to, uh, you know, multiple pushing 30 times, you know, the stock is trading at kind of 20 times operating earnings. So we have valuation concerns, you know, I wouldn't be a big buyer. We've bought it, you know, 10 points lower for cash flows and for new clients. Uh, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, the stocks up, you know, eleven, $12 just in the last two weeks. And, you know, I I I think the case for the business really hinges on on you know long-term growth. You know, I think it's a it's a company that can grow its top line at high single digits per year uh with you know modest, reasonable sherry purchases, you can grow earnings per share kind of at 10 to 12% perhaps. But if you go back a couple of years when Howard Schultz stepped away from the business and Kevin Johnson came in as CEO, you know, he came in from Microsoft and he'd had a couple other tech jobs. And really almost immediately with, with, with Schultz leaving the business, you know, the, the company at that time for various reasons ramped up what had been a pretty aggressive sherry purchase program. And you know, this kind of gets into your capital allocation and governance. You know, if you go back 10 years, you know, generally the sherry purchases, which ran on the order of 20 to 30 percent of profits. Per year were really in place just to offset the dilution that came from uh, share issuance for restricted shares and stock options. And then starting in 16, when when Kevin became president, two years later, CEO, they really ramped up the repurchases. And if you guys remember, in 2018, uh, the company which had previously ditched a distribution agreement with Mondelez signed a big deal, a $5 billion deal that they were paid cash on the barrelhead. For kind of coffee and, and some global distribution rights, so with that five billion dollars, the company went out and really ramped up the sherry purchases and they bought over the course of a two year period of time on the order of seventeen billion dollars worth of the shares, took the book value from you know five or six billion dollars down to a, a, a negative eight or so billion dollars borrowed a, a fair amount of the money that was used to buy the shares back, you know spent on the order of 100 to 250% between those two years on on buying back the stocks. Now you have a company with no on-balance sheet book value. Uh, They've leveraged up the balance sheet. I think you can make the case that, and maybe it was just coincidental, but, but when they did the Nestle deal, it was the time that we were buying the stock and it was cheap. I mean, I think Starbucks was genuinely materially undervalued a couple of years ago. And certainly the sherry purchases contributed to the rise in the stock. It traded as high as almost 100 bucks last fall. Then it, you know, sold off during the COVID downturn, and it's almost back to where it was. And so, you know, we struggle with the valuation. You kind of think through the motivations and Elliot to your to our conversation last week, uh, and Phil with with um, you know governance issues. You go through the proxy for the last 10 years, and it's a company that had done, I think, you know, a reasonable job with executive comp- compensation. for a long time, they had kind of used an adjusted earnings per share metric. And at a point, they overlaid top line growth. And I'm going to say eight or nine years ago, they I remember they threw in a return on invested capital metric, which was really just used as a downward modifier. But, you know, I'd love to see, I mentioned, you know, several times since we've talked, you know, I, I love to see companies who incentivize managements with some form of return on capital or equity or assets. And so you at least had a modest modifier in place that would you know, kind of worked down if the company wouldn't hit a return on invested capital of 22% rose to, it's risen by a few points, which makes sense because the book value has been shrinking thanks to the sherry purchases north of book. So you've got to push up that ROIC metric. Um, you know, again, a couple of years back, they really made a shift change and, you know, moved away from a return on capital. And just in the last year, eliminated that yardstick for what has become a, a relative two and then three year rolling total shareholder return. So all along, the company's had a motivation to buy back the shares, you know, did not have a huge motivation to buy back the shares at a reasonable price. And, you know, I wonder, given the size of the repurchases in 2019, uh, which were made at much higher prices, um, you know, 85 bucks a share versus the 50 bucks they had paid the year before, you know, we, we scratch our heads and yeah, again, to my point, there's very little that's black and white investing in. So we sit and watch this evolving governance. We watch the capital allocation. I think given the leverage that exists now in the business, you know, a great time to have bought back stock would have been during the COVID meltdown. The stock traded down to 50 bucks, which was our original cost two years ago. And the company, like so many, were handicapped. By too much leverage on the balance sheet, and the best time to have bought back stock, even though the company had closed over half their stores internationally, would have been to buy back shares. But they were already at that kind of three to one leverage, which is on, on, on the max end of where they want to be. When you look at operating, you capitalize operating leases, and so you've got a business that's 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 less flexible in terms of capital strategy. You know, I still think you know between paying half the profits as dividends. Opening incremental stores, and I think the store growth in China is really the bull case for the stock, um, and then modest repurchases. You know, they you know they've got a use for what amounts to about five billion dollars in operating cash, but albeit with less, less flexibility. And so, you know, we scratch our heads. And with the stock trading on the very expensive end, um, you know, it's kind of one of these mid-range things where you're not so inclined to buy meaningfully, you're not so inclined to sell meaningfully, so you watch and wait. And, you know, the, you wouldn't call them red flags, but pink flags have uh, been running up the, the, the mast of the ship. And so I, I, I thought it would be an inter- interesting conversation point, you know, with, with the conversations we've had. So I'll, I'll open it up to you guys. And I'd love your thoughts on the business. I don't know if you own it, but uh, certainly some of these governance and capital allocation uh, issues that, that are so pervasive everywhere that even in a great business like Starbucks, you step back and wonder if, if they're really doing the most intelligent thing. I've looked yeah. at it. And then from that lens, I would say it was
1: always struck me as a pretty well-managed company. And I agree, there's some imperfections that could be improved for sure, but nothing that would scare me away, at least relative to every other large public company that's out there. I mean, I was just pulling up their stock-based compensation number. Like you said, that did used to be a pretty meaningful number. They're just offsetting. It's, it's less meaningful now. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything there that would really scare me off. I'd be curious for your thoughts, though, as to how much the international growth is going to be the determinant factor in the future and how much you think they might have room left to grow in the core markets where they already exist. I mean, I know they've had great success expanding in places like China, but uh, I'm just not much up to speed into how, what the odds look like for that going forward.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the North American market is certainly far more saturated than it was. But you've seen them in the last few years continue to open U.S. stores at a 3 to 4% net store count clip. You know, they're, they're, you know they're, they're opening stores, but they're also closing stores, but that net number grows by 3 to 4 I don't see that changing for the foreseeable future. The real growth in the business, and this has been evolving for the last you know, five years. I mean, to me, China is very much a Starbucks story. Um, it looks to me a lot like um, Yum! Brands and, and the chicken business. A handful of years ago when they really started rolling out in China. The unit economics in China are better stores. You know, they have about 4,500 stores today. I think it's entirely plausible that 10 years out, they've got as many stores in China in the system as they do domestically. So putting it all together, you know, the the system has about 32,000 stores, roughly evenly split between company-owned stores and effectively your 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 lease stores your your licensed stores some are actually you know a few are still run on a pure franchise model all of their stores in china are company owned they used to have a joint venture that they they effectively bought back and so starbucks own the store so the bull case is they can open stores at a mid teens rate of growth uh, you know i think you know 1 to 3% type you know same store sales growth in terms of revenue comps uh, makes sense, I think they can drive numbers of transactions in their global franchise and even in the u s stores they had some issues. part of the reason why we were able to buy the stock is they had some operating cash flow issues. The stores had gotten too crowded they didn 't really know how to deal with the online ordering uh, and you wound up at a point where the stores were really understaffed for high volume traffic you, know, you, you didn 't have enough warmers for their their hot food items, and so they 've solved a lot of that you know they they 've had to actually increase the staffing during peak hours. Uh, you know, the, the line of walking into a store and waiting, you know, it was a frustrating experience when people are walking in who had, who had pre-ordered on their phone their order and they're picking up their, their coffee and you're standing there for an extra five or 10 minutes above and beyond what had been the case five or six years back. So they've worked through that. Their, their blocking and tackling is really good. But I think, man that, man, that growth curve in China is really long, which also becomes the biggest risk to the business as well. And it's not so much that a Luckin or somebody else can come along, Luckin wound up being a fraud, but you know that was always kind of conventionally in the last two or three years perceived to be the big threat was delivery. Well, they've got a delivery business in China. They've got a partnership with Alibaba. They lean on mobile pay in China far, far, far more than they do in the U.S. And it's a big deal in the U.S. It's, the mobile orders is about 40% of uh, the rewards points are about 40% of the business. It's closer to 75%. In China, you know, throughout the rest of Asia they can grow. They've proven not to be able to grow that much, to your question, Phil, in, in Europe. Um, I just think the Starbucks cafe model doesn't hold up against mom and pop cafe model. It's just it's a different animal in Europe. But in, in in Asia and in various of your emerging markets, there's still a I think a very long growth curve. And the risk would be that we wind up with a much worse relationship with China and the CCP. And you wind up seeing what's happened over the course of, of decades, you know, foreign governments commandeer your assets and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they, they take your stores away. They take away the right to grow in the country. And, you know, the long growth tail winds up being greatly muted because without the Chinese growth tail, you know, Starbucks is not worth the current, the current multiple to the uh, current earning power on the business.
3: Yeah. I gave... A good hard look to Starbucks in the first half of 2018. I was very close to buying it on the earnings where they basically said, um, you know, store level growth, same store sales had come in, but they're going to go about this project of cap structure optimization. And, you know, when they, when they really uh, ramped up the repurchase. I found several things interesting. I mean, I tend to look for GARP type situations, and to me, that whole move for cap structure optimization was an acknowledgement of a uh, degree of maturity that they they had kept an overcapitalized balance sheet for a long time, and they they were no longer going to do that. Um, there was a bit of a signal that you know they expected growth to slow. At the same time, it was when they had purchased and. Kind of recapture the rights to all their China stores and growth in China. And it was a pretty complex transaction that, you know, part of the world where I, I can't quite wrap my head around the opportunity as well. Like, I understand it's a huge market, but I've always had these fears of can US investors ever realize the fruits of that opportunity? Like, will the cash even ever make its way back here if these businesses could continue to operate unabated over there? So, you know, I had a hard time with that. Um, the things that really intrigued me when we were in, uh, in Idea Week 2019, Isaac Schwartz presented um, kind of like this thought experiment about a WeWork-type place where people go and sit and, you know, get their work done and, you know, the, the price is fairly small and you could go and do it anywhere in the world at a place that's similar, trustworthy uh, you know what you're going to get, and you know the idea was that it was Starbucks at the end of the day, and it was uh, definitely a way that Starbucks resonated with me. I end up going to the to Manhattan, I call it the city. I go to the city a lot from Stanford, and I often needed a place to plant myself, and I would find myself at Starbucks pretty regularly. And then the app using Pay that was really intriguing, and I like it. I should have. Uh, stepped up the price I was holding firm to, which was in the mid 40s, never quite got there intraday. But what I'd ask about now is I wonder if people's behavior is changing in a way where you know, they got themselves a coffee grinder, they have a subscription to high-end beans that come to their house monthly, uh, they have a drip coffee maker, have taken a certain joy in doing it themselves at home. And, you know, uh, who knows what happens with office space down the line? Do we end up going as much? Like if people aren't going into the office as frequently, Starbucks was a common break spot. Uh, you'd step away, go down, get a, get a coffee and, you know, kind of in some ways the modern cigarette break. Um, so like what happens to Starbucks going forward? How can they evolve and how do they find and make sure that their role is as relevant um, going forward, that would be what i 'd worry about today curious what
0: yeah, you think. to me, I think they 've solved a lot of that and, and you 've seen it in the covid i mean obviously, when you close half your stores you know they're they 're back up to now where they're you know ninety five or ninety six percent of their u s stores are open they 're almost fully open in china. the closures and and the store growth uh decline really was was much more modest in China than it was here. You know, with with half the stores being licensed, you just don't have the same volume of traffic in airports, for example. So their licensed stores at the end of the last quarter are only about eighty seven percent open. Um, but I think you know you, you you've got the traffic. I think what you've seen is they're driving larger transaction sizes. So the the mobile orders are larger. So you know you, you know if you're going to wind up permanently working at home, and I'm not sure that's a a a massive permanent trend. I think once we're clear of the COVID, a lot of people are going to leave their their white collar home office space and head back into the more conventional office space. But the re- revenues have, have improved markedly. And, you know, and you're still taking your kids to school at some level for those that are allowed to be in school. And so you run out and you get your coffee in the morning. Instead of going to the office, you bring it back home. Um, they've got a delivery business with Grubhub where transaction volumes are really high. So I, so I, I don't think the changing culture is that much of an issue. They've Cultivated this, this great affection for the brand. They've cultivated an affection for the product. I think the Nestle deal was brilliant. To your point about you know, your home grinders and what have you, you know, the, the deal with Nestle gave them global distribution. I can tell you, during the COVID, I started drinking coffee again. You know, we have an espresso machine, which is wonderful, and and the Starbucks pod that goes into the Nespresso machine runs about sixty five cents per canister. You know, we get them at Costco. So you can get sixty of them for I want to say thirty nine bucks, and the quality is terrific. It's in a pod, but you know you get the same foam on the top of the coffee. You know my kids will still because they like to drive; they'll leave the house because you know they like going into the stores. But really, you get into this curve in China, and there's such a devotion to brand by the Chinese, all the way up from a Patek Philippe watch, all the way down to the kind of the green logo on the on the on the on the Starbucks cup. And the Chinese palate has proven to, to like the, the roastery, to like the flavor of the Arabica bean. You know, they've, they've actually developed their own roastery in China to suit the Chinese palate. And you look at the numbers and the average Chinese citizen, and there are a lot of them, consumes one serving of coffee per year versus 200 servings of coffee per year for every man, woman, and child in North America. So if you believe they can grow from 100 plus cities to 250 cities, and they can get into more of the smaller city suburban core, I think the the growth curve is wildly long. And if you're looking at 32,000 stores today, it could be really long. But I think they've become too much of an embedded part, Elliot, of of you know the culture to where you know the brand is as is as recognizable as anything, and the product is outstanding, and they're really good at blocking and tackling. And so you know they've worked through the issues in the past they've had to. The issues with the line that I talked about. I, I, I don't think a changing home culture is going to impact the business that much. I think it's going to drive transaction sizes higher. And you know, I think, you know, baking on a 10% say top line growth, you know, combined from unit growth and and same-store sales growth is a reasonable assumption for the foreseeable future, which means even at 88 bucks, the stock is not wildly expensive. It's not trading at 40 or 50 or 60 times. You know, it's trading at a you know, kind of mid-20s multiple. And, you know, if you believe the growth curve and the units, it's it's not that far away from, you know, being as, as great of a buy as it was two years ago at 50 bucks a share. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the two things that I've
1: missed over the years that are the, the most important things in these types of situations are what you just highlighted, which is, I, I'm with you, by the way, I don't think everybody's going to work from home forever. There's going to be more flexibility and, and maybe some dedensification densification of some of the big urban centers, but I don't think that really impacts things here. I think the China thing is much bigger. But anyway, um, I think the habit-forming nature of the company and the McDonald's effect that you saw in, in fast food is really what's relevant here. And I think Howard Schultz has talked about this quite a bit, that you know he wanted to replicate that cafe kind of setting where you did have somewhere to go, like Ellie was talking about. We've all done this, I'm sure, when we're traveling or in a new place. But it's also just a very significant part of the daily routine for a lot of people. And so those two aspects, I think, are hugely important. And then the third one that, that jumps out at me is I still remember this right out of college. Our freshman banking class in New York was um, had one of those kind of well-known uh, finance and accounting and valuation experts come in to do the training. And he actually used Starbucks as an example. And this was unfortunately a long time ago, but he told the story about how His wife had actually come to him, I guess it would have been in the mid 90s, and said, You know, honey, we should really look at this company. I think this is going to be the next great thing. And he looked at it and basically looked at the financials. And like a lot of us are prone to do, you know, the financials back then were still a little bit of a mess. And he would have had to squint to kind of imagine these qualitative aspects really taking off. And he said, You know, kind of, shoved her to the side and just said, Look, honey, this is ridiculous. We're not we're not buying stock in this company. This is a joke. And he everybody got a good laugh out of it. And we're all sitting there going, Wow, our, you know, vaunted professor at the front of the room doesn't know what he's doing because he's up there saying he missed it. But of course, one, that's a very easy mistake to make that I've made several times since then. And of course he made another mistake, which I've done over the years a lot too, which is to say I missed it. And so he hadn't missed it twenty years ago by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, but here we are. So I, I still think about that all the time when, you know, when, the, when these combination of factors pile up in a business, you really just need to get those two or three things right. And it doesn't matter if you miss the first part of it or even the first five or 10 years. I mean, there's still a long, long way to go.
0: Yeah. And even if, even if unit growth doesn't wind up being the six to seven or so percent that the company forecasts, again they, they, again, they've still proven an ability to grow in the United States, which is remarkable. And these units are unbelievably profitable. You know, each store does three quarters of a million bucks in revenues. The U.S. stores are in high 20s return. The the cash investment to open a, a store is only about $300,000. Um, you know, the, the company, Starbucks does not go out of their way to let you know how profitable their Chinese stores are. But if you look at the incremental growth and in returns on, on total capital employed in the business, it's easy to get to maybe a low 30s number on these Chinese stores. And so, you know, if you go to the worst case and the Chinese commandeer those assets and there's no growth curve, you know, it's 4,500 stores out of a 32,000 store franchise. It's not huge yet. That would be an extreme worst case, but they can grow in Japan. They can grow throughout the rest of Asia. They can grow in emerging markets. And at those unit returns on capital, any store you can put in the ground is incrementally profitable. And you've not seen really the point, even kind of in 1415, when they ran into cannibalization in some locations, their real estate people are really good. And so they know when they're cannibalizing each other's stores. But the ability to still grow unit stores in the United States is remarkable because all of us would have said, or at least I would have said 10 years ago, no way, they've completely overdone the U.S. and all of this growth is going to come internationally. If you look at the numbers, if you look at the unit growth, they can still put shovels in the ground and they can still open units, which is remarkable to me. So I think, you know, even at, even at three or 4% unit growth, you know, kind of half of what they're baking on, you know, as long as you can drive the comps up one to 3%, three or 4% in the US, it's still up. It's still got a great growth tail to it. And you're not paying a, a high tech or a software type multiple for it. And the incremental unit profitability is off the charts.
3: Yeah, it's hard to disagree with uh, the general thinking there. I mean, I definitely don't think work from home is going to be permanent. I do think maybe the uh, 3% range in store comps is a bit aspirational. When I was working on it in 2018, they were slowing to, you know, flirting with negative. Obviously, it was the restaurant recession time. There was some pullback on their strategy uh, on the food side of things along, you know, that they were selling uh, alongside coffee. Um, but it seems more like the one to two percent range. So if they do one to two percent, add five percent to the store footprint a year, mid to upper single digit growth doesn't seem like they could wring much more margin out of the U.S. stores. And then I guess on the I'm just really trying to play devil's advocate here because I'm pretty freaking intrigued still. But to to throw out a comp on the cap structure side of things, Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, great company, great growth, similar recipe. Um They were pushed by Dan Loeb to kind of uh maturize their cap structure. They took on a bunch of debt to repurchase shares, and you know a slow deterioration in the business uh kept them hamstrung strategically from more you know more more forcefully moving into a new direction, um, not to say that that potential exists to the same extent. At Starbucks, but I got a whiff of you with some concern about where they left the cap structure and how that kind of left them with their hands tied behind their back during the COVID uh, shutdowns. What What do you think about those those points there?
0: No, I think you're right, and and the big red flag to me was the was the very large share purchase in 2019. Again, you know, I, I applaud them to no end for the seven or so billion dollars that they bought back in 18 because they bought them back at the price that I was paying. But then, when you paid eighty-five bucks a share, which was kind of back to a thirty-type multiple to normalized free cash margins, you know it was a big number. And and to me, you know, I, I want to see a share repurchase done at an incrementally attractive price, and not so much to, to buy them back for the sake of buying them back. And so, when you encumber the balance sheet to the point where you reduce some operational flexibility it's problematic. So, so I would watch something like that. Um, you know, to me, there are enough pros to offset some of the cons, but you know, it's it's a comp heavy structure. Um, you know, why Howard Schultz was in, was granted as many option shares as he was even very late in the game was a mystery. You know, obviously he was a rock star and he built the brand and he grew it from nothing to a, a absolute colossus. But yeah, it's, Allocation, allocation, and governance are are more of more of a, a, a lukewarm concern. Yeah, Elliot, I agree. Than, than they would have been two or three years ago. And so we watch it. And if you know if the growth curve winds up not being a problem, or, or winds up being a problem, you overlay those, and you know, all of a sudden the preponderance of the evidence points against you. But you know, for the time being, you know, the size of our position reflects what we think about it. But I, I, I hate seeing I hate seeing a balance sheet that ten years ago was pristine. I mean very little long-term debt. They use obviously a lot of operating leases. You capitalize those now. And like I say, they're running, you know, on the very high end of where the business should run on a debt-to-EBITDA basis. And it takes away some operational flexibility. Now you can make the counterclaim and argument that, well, there's not a lot of use for the capital. I mean, you're growing as fast as you can. You know, we're going to grow units in China at mid-teens rate. We're growing every store we can. We're leaning on our, our, our license Partners to the to the degree we can, you know, we've done good things with consumer package goods, and so maybe there's not a lot of use for the capital. So, and and you see that in the dividend policy. You see that in the dividend policy in companies like Costco, which have kind of increased the payout and they've done it with special one-time dividends. But 20 years ago, 10 years ago, Costco needed the capital to grow its units incrementally, and now the unit growth is smaller as a percentage of outstanding stores. So, of the five billion in operating cash flow, pay half of it to me as a dividend. That's okay. Um, you know, as long as you can still drive incremental returns, at least neutral or higher with new stores, you will. Um, I, I don't know. The, I'm going to say it for like the third time, but you know, a $10 billion share repurchase, which was almost two and a half times the net income for year 2019 to buy back stock at prices that I would not have paid, gives me a little bit of pause.
2: And Chris, just a quick question on uh, how the stores are actually operated. Are those company-owned stores for the most part, or do they also franchise?
0: No, it's about half. About half their stores are are company-owned. So call it 16,000. 16,000 stores are are licensed stores. And and most of their licensing partners are are really good operators. So when you go into a Starbucks store in a Target uh, or in a grocery store, you know, those, those, are, those are managed by uh, the operators there. When you go into a, a Starbucks in an airport, those are all run by HMS Host. And they run, you know, several hundred of their, their licensed stores and travel plazas as well, again, by HMS Host. So the, the license partners that they have are terrific. So the business will effectively make a margin uh, from the licensed stores for any of the branded products that they sell. They also get a royalty stream and then like I said earlier there a few of their stores are under the pure kind of classic franchise model but you know generally on those licensed stores the gross margin to the to the parent is less uh, but the operating margins are huge because again the company's not bearing the capital of the lease and so you know the incremental profitability driven by their license partners is terrific and 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 they're not going to give a license to anybody you know they're giving them to very very good retail partners so the the economics are different and you know, it's kind of hard to tease out the implicit unit store profitability. We've tried to do it over the years. And I can't tell you exactly what a unit looks like between a franchise store, a, a, a leased a, a, a licensed store or a company owned store. But again, you know, if you assume it costs about 300,000 bucks to open one, and that's the cash cost uh, without, without the real estate put in, you know, the break evens for opening a store are about two years. There's something like one and a half years in China. So, Uh, I I think you'll see, um, you know, probably a a little bit of uh, drive toward company-owned stores. Again, all of their stores in China for the time being are company-owned. And so with most of the incremental growth coming from China, the skew is going to start, I I would guess, moving that number up a little bit off of 50-50. But it's about half and half, John. Got it. Great. Well, I guess we'll leave it there for
2: Starbucks. That was a great discussion. Thank you, guys. Uh, let's move on to Elliot uh, for uh, what you had on your mind for today.
3: Okay, yeah, you guys may have to forgive me or thank me for introducing this discussion. Um, I was slightly reluctant to take this trip down memory lane at first, though I was uh, encouraged to do so by more than a few people, and I thought it would be you know both timely and interesting to. Kind of think about whether 1999 is an appropriate and relevant comparison for the market today. Um, seen a lot of people say, like, this is just like 1999. And when I sit here in my seat, I could feel myself arguing both sides of this case pretty, pretty vociferously. There was an interesting tweet yesterday from Modest Proposal, which I think drew on an, an empirical research piece that said, um, I had four charts, but the interesting parts in particular were that today, just like 1999, the best and worst quintile of free cash flow free cash flow margin companies are outperforming the rest of the market. So those with the best and the worst free cash flow profiles are the kinds of stocks that are doing the best right now. And they're outperforming by about 10% each. Um, and then if you look at deciles of free cash flow to EV, it's, disproportionately rewarding those companies on on both sides, Uh, the the most, sorry, it's disproportionately rewarding the most expensive companies, the companies with the worst free cash flow uh, TV. And interestingly, though, it's only one fourth as extreme today as it was in 1999 there. And then revenue growth as a factor. This is one that's interesting that I think a lot of people will really draw on. Uh, But revenue growth as a factor is outperforming uh, the S and P at an even higher rate than in 1999. So people are really, really paying up for revenue in particular, and I think that's the constant between the best and worst quintile free cash flow margin companies outperforming as well. But then I wanted to consider like a couple other things to help contextualize this all. So. Um, When you look at the companies that are performing the best and the worst, there's some persistence from pre and post-COVID, but one of the big constants is that there's real dispersion in the pain and opportunity um, from COVID as an external shock, right? COVID is not the economic cycle playing out in an oscillating way. It is something completely external to our everyday state. And because of this, there are factually disproportionate winners and losers. Um, so some degree of dispersion, I think, is incredibly justified. And when you think about this from a valuation perspective, right, the companies who came into this with very low valuations look at sectors like energy and retail, brick and mortar retail. Those are two of the sectors uh, most vulnerable to um, the consequences of stay-at-home orders. and the. Winners on the other side of the ledger, um, those companies and technology are disproportionate winners. The second thing that I'm thinking a lot about and considering retail investing, activity, retail investing, the activity is surging. There's no way around that. You know, I think this ties in pretty nicely to our conversation uh last week uh, where, where we were talking about uh payment for order flow at the brokers. Um you know, retail activity, you drive transaction costs to zero, you give everyone an app that's completely gamified like Robinhood. Uh, you make options just another toy that you could throw around. And people are playing, especially, I guess, the third dimension is you, you tell people that they have to stay at home. Um, they're treating the stock market like a video game. And Dave Portnoy kind of embodies this phenomenon yeah, and I think it's no one of the clearest ways you see that is in splits driving prices to absurd levels. The third thing I'm thinking about with this is um, you have rising concentration of the biggest s and p stock. So like you know Apple in particular, um some of these big tech companies, they're they're a much bigger and bigger part of the s and p. Um, and then, you know, you think back about a Buffett quote from I think it was a twenty eighteen annual meeting. The four largest companies today by market value do not need any net tangible assets, he said. They are not like AT&T, GM, or ExxonMobil, requiring lots of capital to produce earnings. We have become an asset-light economy. So these companies are like inherently different, but a degree of concentration uh, that's higher than we've seen in a generation is something uh, to think about. The fourth thing I'm thinking about with this all is the market was far more heated heading into 1999 than today. So Um, In the three years heading into 1999, the NASDAQ had gone up by a factor of 4x in that period. Today, over the prior three years to this date, we're less than 2x, more about 80%. Um, So while things are a little giddy, it's not exactly uh, apples to apple. Uh, Apples to apples. sorry for my uh, pun there. Um, And then, you know, the last gets to uh, that Buffett quote, the fifth thing that I'm really thinking about right now. But a lot of these growth companies that are all the rage, that have revenue uh, really driving things, revenue growth uh, being the gaudy figure that people are investing behind, Well, it's being a little more rewarded than in 1999, by and large, and I could point to a couple exceptions, but by and large, these companies are internally financed. They're not beholden to capital markets. They don't have to rely on fundraising to drive their growth. Um, they really could rely on their unit economics and invest uh, incremental margin into s and And so, you know, in some cases in particular, where there have been excess earnings from COVID, they could really ratchet their investment to accelerate their growth, um, where, you know, perhaps cap- not wanting to tap capital markets was a constraint um, and having these greater resources, they could drive growth. So perhaps, you know, some of these companies... Truly, are worth more because their runways are untapped, uh, are, are very long, and the only thing holding them back was was the resources to invest and a willingness to tap into them. And so, you know, like I guess the last thing to consider is if this is like 1999, how does it all resolve? Right? Do we end up in a crash-like scenario where value outperforms and growth drops, bringing everything down with it because the market's concentrated in growth as a factor? Or do growthier things end up in this like decade-long sideways sideways range of stagnation? So, you know, I want to open this up to everyone else to kind of chime in with their own thoughts, what they're thinking about uh, in this
1: comparison. And, you know, let's
3: see where it goes from there.
1: Well, I don't know that I have any brilliant insights. I think the one thing that jumps out to me isn't whether this is an exact replica of any prior time I think the, the data you suggested or, or pointed out suggests all the same things which is you're right I mean people are clearly paying up for revenue now whether that's taken too far or not is a different a little bit different question in my high level and bottoms-up view of individual companies we haven't quite gotten back to where we were in, in 99 or anything you know like that I wasn't investing through that period though so it's easier to look through the academic historical lens and say, oh well, of course you missed this and this and this. It's much different when you're actually investing through it. Um, but one thing that definitely jumps out to me is just how you know that w- that did spawn the golden age, or at least the most recent golden age, for value investors that you know were buying things that were ostensibly cheap. And I hate that term, but it was a very good period for active managers, particularly of any variety of the value bent for that you know, ensuing four, five, six years really from 2000 or 2001 through the financial crisis. And that to me, other than maybe a 12 to 24 month window on the back end of the financial crisis was really the last prolonged great opportunity we've had. And so there hasn't just been this, you know, there, there've been some good opportunities since then in the last decade, don't get me wrong. They just tended to last weeks and months rather than years and so I think if you look back to, I mean, the, the other striking thing is you've just had declining interest rates this whole time, more or less. You really haven't had a multi-year bout of market pessimism since, you know, maybe the, the, the bottoming out of the nifty-fifty bubble in 73-74. And so if you want to make historical comparisons, I almost wonder if that's more interesting because there was this prevailing ethos in, in that era of, you know, you don't need to analyze the company's future prospective returns as an investor because these great 50 companies are just going to dominate the world. And that also then coincided with a period of stagflation and you get two or three things working together that really led to some ugly results for a long period of time and a, you know, a decade plus culminating with the death of equities kind of headlines. Again, that is not a project, a prediction of any sort. I just think that might be an even more interesting parallel, potentially. Even though there's obviously some very good parallels to the to the late '90s as well.
0: Well, I think, guys, having having you know lived and breathed that that period in the late '90s, the parallels to me are striking today, and there there are clearly nuances. Interest rates are are, are a distinct differentiator, you know, we're sitting here at the zero bound of interest rates, but, you know, it's become fashionable to talk about 99. And, you know, everybody wants to look at comparisons at the absolute peak on March 10 of 2000, or the subsequent peak, um, you know, later in September for the S&P 500. But it was really the the tail end of that 17-year bull market that started in, you know, 1981 under early Reagan's first term. And you know, during that bull market, we took credit levels, total credit market debt from you know 158 percent of GDP up to what I then thought at the time was a nosebleed 250 percent level. GDP was 10 trillion on balance sheet. Total credit market debt was 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 two and a half times that, so 25 trillion dollars. And that period from 96, 97, 98, 99, culminating in March of 2000 was extraordinary. I mean, it was a straight up for the NASDAQ. It was a brutally painful period for kind of your classic value investors. You know, those, those were price makes a lot of sense. There were tons of businesses that were growing. Um, the internet had been adopted, you know, the, the, at the very top end of the NASDAQ. Microsoft and Cisco and Intel and Oracle and Sun and you know the list goes on and on. I think people today talk about all the businesses that are real and generating real profits. Well, those were real businesses. I mean, they were growing at extraordinary clips. They were extraordinarily profitable. Microsoft, which you know at the very peak was doing twenty billion in sales, it was capitalized at thirty times that number, but and eighty-five times earnings. But if you go back in LA, you you mentioned it. You, You talked about the the the. From two to five. Really, if you go back to ninety-six, the Nasdaq was a thousand and it peaked at five thousand. And that last doubling took place in the last year. So you could make the case that maybe we're not sitting here at the absolute peak if you want to go complete apples to apples. But and the valuations at the absolute peak were insane. I mean, Microsoft was, like I say, 80 plus times. Cisco was, you know, over 150 times earnings. There were there were big you know there were big businesses though they were doing twenty billion each in sales. Intel was doing thirty billion in sales and it traded at forty times earnings. Oracle was doing ten billion in sales and it traded at a hundred times earnings. A, a big difference today are, are are at the top of the growth spectrum. You clearly have these five tech businesses. You have Visa and Mastercard that have fifty percent net profit margins. These are much bigger businesses today as a percentage of. The economy, they are huge. I mean, the you know the, the the top five or ten businesses made up a similar percentage of market cap then as they do today. They were differently oriented. You know, it wasn't as tech heavy today. It's very tech heavy. Uh, it's it's very to your point. Kind of a lot of this incremental growth has come without the need for a lot of capital. But you're sitting here today with these big now now big businesses. I mean. Large bases from which to grow. Microsoft doing 150 billion in sales. Apple's going to probably do 300 billion dollars next year. Amazon doing over 300 billion. Google's doing over 150 billion dollars. As a group, they're now trading at 45 times earnings. And I would, I would argue for the last better part of the last decade, as a group and individually, you know, these big businesses were not that expensive. In retrospect, MasterCard and Visa, when they traded in the low 20s to earnings, are not that expensive. If you overlay, as I mentioned, interest rates, and if we're going to capitalize things on a a Fed model basis, I mean, we're no longer at 7% interest rates where you'd pay 14 times. We're not even at 5% interest rates where you'd pay 20 times. You know, now we're getting into this era where we're trying to justify valuations based on 150 basis point or 130 basis point long bond. So you start talking about 60 or 70 to earnings. You know, the flip side there is A, I think a, a large reason why we have. Zero interest rates and very low long-term rates, is we don't have a lot of growth in the economy. You know, for the last 20 years, nominal GDP grew three and a half percent. For the last 10 years, it's only grown three. I would envision very little growth in nominal output for the broad economy. And so you have this kind of haves and have nots, and we're very much rewarding the haves. But to what price? And you go back to the classic, you know, finance study, and where's the equity risk premium? You know, if you're paying 50 times earnings and a 2% earnings yield where's the four-point spread to credit-bearing instru- instruments? I mean, I think you've got a Fed that's willing to say, we're going to hold short-term rates at zero, we're going to try to get inflation at two, so we're going to screw the household saver to no end. Uh, you know, Typically, over the course of time, T-bills would kind of mimic the inflation rate, so now we're going to create you know, a two-point spread there, and we're going to rob the populace that way. To me, it's dangerous. I mean, you think about where, how, where we've come in the last 20 years, the You know, the NASDAQ, which, as I say, went from 1,000 to 5,000, round trip back to 1,000. The S&P and the Dow fell by half. The NASDAQ fell by 80%. It completely gave up that five years worth of gains. And it took 15 years to get back to the peak. Are we at the peak today? I don't know. But since then, GDP is up by a little over twice. You know, call it 2.2 times from 10 to what was going to be 22 trillion, probably only 20 trillion this year. But, you know, the NAS, you know, the S&P was 1,500. It's over 3,000. So the the NASDAQ, which was 5,000, you know, is now yesterday 12,000. So, you know, these things have all grown about 2.2X. And so on that same plane, you know, you have these, these, these indices that are trading kind of on par with where GDP was at the time. And I put it all together. And to me, you know, the lunacy in some of these names is, 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 as striking. Um, and I'll stop here, but, you know, the I think that, you know, you take the, the businesses that are clear frauds or could be frauds or businesses that are just ridiculously overvalued, Wirecard and Luckin, which I talked about with Starbucks, Tesla, you know, had a market cap a few days ago, $450 billion on 26 billion in revenues and really not generating profits. If you look at the accounting properly, no, you know, these SaaS businesses, who knows, but you're paying incredible premiums for everything that has to go right. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I don't know. The, I, I never thought we'd see a repeat of the late 90s again. And it, it, it feels so much like the late 90s again with the bifurcation in the market and valuation extremes that you're seeing, credit levels that are so much higher than they were then. I mean, I kind of think we're at the fork in the road where the outcome on one hand is really bad, which is a deflationary period for the next decade. And the outcome, on the other hand, is really bad, which is the Fed and other central banks trying to introduce hyperinflation. And I, I don't see how you can have a normal road where we're simply going to grow nominal output at a reasonable rate, and we're all going to just kumbaya go along and make reasonable returns because prices are stretched beyond fundamentals. And we've got a wildly distorted credit picture that I'm not sure the central banks can extricate themselves from. And so-,
3: so I to want to present something like a little, maybe, maybe a-, a add two more contrasts with then and perhaps come back to some of these questions because I think they're really good ones and I think it's interesting. So um, one contrast that was from my list I didn't get to but I think ties into exactly what you're saying though and you'll see how I bring it there. Um, when you look at 1999 and really uh, a parallel bubble that popped in 2001, the telecom bubble, um, from I think it was, I, I might be slightly off of my numbers because uh, pulling this together kind of late, but um, from 1996 to 2001, there was $500 billion invested in U.S. uh, telecommunications infrastructure, which is just an absolutely obscene amount. Um, And so in parallel with rising valuations, you also had massive amounts of actual investment. And this was malinvestment. There wasn't really need for that sort of capacity And it had ripple effects through the system. So it made other companies appear, like Cisco in particular, looked like a phenomenal grower because as telcos invested all this money, um, they just had to buy a lot from Cisco. Today, you're not really getting that sort of feedback into uh, capital expenditures. And so alongside that, in 1999, you had this incredible optimism at the turn of the millennium Um, The Cold War had been decisively won. We could move forward as a unified world with the American uh, way. Um, And today you have this kind of like retrenchment globally. And basically I feel like societal, you know, enthusiasm is given way to like mass anger. Um, And you have no parallel boom in investment in any one sector in our economy. Um, So when you think about the consequence of rising equity price, in some ways, perhaps the, con- the, the the true effect is that it actually is incentivizing people to invest, right? Look at these massive prices. So start investing, build things on the ground up. Like before your incentive was, these things are really lean on capital. They don't need capital. So hell, I'll just buy them. But today it's like, okay, now I can't just buy them because they're really expensive. So I should invest in something to go beneath them or to go beyond them. Um, and so perhaps... You know, this could actually add fuel to the economy to actually get people to to go back to more robust capex uh, to get capital expenditures as a percent of GDP back above the thirty percent, mid thirty percent range. It oscillated around from the nineteen fifties to the mid nineteen nineties. For context, you know, since the since the fallout of the uh, uh, financial crisis, we've been sitting in the mid mid twenties uh, for the most part. So. Well, I mean, how do you how do you think about that?
0: I think there's there's a lot to that. I mean, you know, you had the, the communications world, which did peak a little bit later, and, and and there was a rolling top to when the stock market peaked. It wasn't all March 10 of 2000. You know, parts of it peaked in in late 2000. Parts of it didn't peak until 2001. But I remember the the the, the fiber optic networks that were being laid. You know, the one of the one of the very most expensive mistakes that I made was trying to buy Williams communications after the stock fell 90% in price. And the company was, had spent something like $7 billion laying fiber next to its pipeline network. And everybody was doing the same thing. And you did the math and thought you're never going to get there. I'd step back and and make the argument as a counterpoint, Elliot, if we're genuinely going to replace the carbon footprint and we're going to do away with coal-fired plants and we're going to do away with natural gas-fired plants and we're going to replace the internal combustion engine with battery. You look at the dollar cost of replacing the infrastructure that we already have in place and it gets into the multiple trillions of dollars. And again, we're, we're at a, a level of credit market debt that's now four times the size of output. We don't have the money to take on these product, you know, the, you know, these, these, these infrastructure projects and we don't generate the free cash and and and, and the incremental profitability. There are capital intensive places. Tesla, we talked about it a few weeks ago, is an incredibly capital intensive business that's going to need money to grow. And raising five billion dollars here off on a stock that's trading at at least ten x above what, what what valuation would normally warrant. I just don't think we have the resources. And so, you know, perhaps it's not directly being spent within the companies, but you have a lot of fanciful, fanciful valuations in a place like that, in the battery cars, the battery technology, you know, where, where prices are so far ahead of reality. And again, I'm not sure we have the money to do what we're setting out to do. And so you know, there going to be a lot of explosion of capital in that place. And, and, and there, are, there are, to me, pockets of parallels between the two periods.
3: Yeah, I agree with the pockets. I guess uh, with Tesla, so are you basically saying that the five billion they're raising now? Which, by the way, I feel like they should have raised money a lot sooner and taken that off the table. But you know, power to Musk for having waited out markets here. Uh, but are you, do you think that should have been invested elsewhere? And we're getting malinvestment there. And like in aggregate, do you see anything where like at this scale we're investing too far today? Like a bubble typically comes with a high degree of you know, actual malinvestment, I would think, or, you know, guess, but I just don't feel that there's one area of uh, massive excess in the end dollars being spent, more so just multiples in some some pockets, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I just think if we're going to spend 25 to 50% of GDP replacing the energy grid, and the way we produce power, and, and maybe we have to get there, I don't know, but we don't have the resources to do it. Tesla, the $5 billion, I don't know if you guys follow what they did, but that was an at-the-money transaction, or, or it, was, it was at the market. So they're, they're not going to take a roadshow and, you know, pitch a $5 billion capital raise to anybody that's, that's got a brain on their shoulders. You know, they're going through this army of brokers, and they're going to sell $5 billion worth of stock, again, at a $450 billion cap, or what was a $450 billion cap a few days ago to people willing to pay that for a business that has 26 billion in revenues and loses money and really pushes on the accounting envelope. You know, buyer beware, but I think it's just, it, it, it's an, it, it's the absolute bad behavior of capital. If you're Elon Musk, you need capital to grow. They don't generate free cash profit to invest and grow the number of plants from four to 40 like they're gonna have to do. So they're gonna have to raise money. And, and why wouldn't you raise it when the share price is high? Well, Warren Buffett would never raise the price and fool a shareholder in a new buying round at a price that was just absolutely lethal to your capital. You know, I think it's very plausible that Tesla trades 80 to 90% below the current bid. Um, And the only way they're going to grow is to raise money. I think, I think what they've just done is abhorrent, but again, it it goes back to this, this, this battery technology. Uh, Maybe we have to get there, but you know, the winner is more apt to be Volkswagen and Fiat Chrysler and GM, you know, companies that already have the infrastructure in place. Do we have to replace the energy grid? Do we have to replace the auto manufacturers with something entirely new? Again, I don't think we have the money in society to do what we're setting out to do. And we're talking about enormous capital expenditures.
3: Yeah, but at the same time, we haven't really gotten to a point where much has been invested. Like Tesla in the in the grand scheme of things is just like a, a really small spec. Um, this might be the first whiff that there's something beyond uh, that degree of investment. So that, you know, that, that's where I have a hard time grappling with this. I just don't see like massive societal overinvestment in any one thing uh, other than valuations lifting.
0: Well, within Berkshire Hathaway, they're spending a mountain of money on CapEx, building out their wind and, and solar infrastructure. And they're doing it on an allowed rates return basis. But it's a subsidized spend, you know, the tax credits that they're earning, you know, justify the capital cost of the project. If you didn't have a societal directive that this is where we're going to go with energy production. You know, the, the the investments that Berkshire's making would not make any sense. You would lean on natural gas. You would lean on coal. I think it's insane for the globe to go away from nuclear energy post Fukushima and the trillions and trillions of dollars that we're going to spend, which are going to be done in solar and wind. If you think about it, the 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 the, the amount of capacity you've got to create winds up being double current. Current production capacity because the sun only shines half the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time, and and for the time being you can't store it. It's just you know the numbers. If you really dig into the science, are gargantuan. And again, we're broke. The United States is broke. Europe is broke. Japan is broke. I don't think we can afford to do what we're doing, which you know is is done with the noblest of intents. I'm I'm very skeptical and I disagree. I think the numbers being spent on 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 alternative energy. it, it are are very very large numbers. I don't know, Phil or John do you guys have a, a Yeah I guess I'll, I'll
2: I'll jump in real quick um you know I I don't think Berkshire Hathaway would you know malinvest a capex so I don't think that's um you know any sign of a bubble in in capex and malinvestment and I'm not sure you really need um that kind of malinvestment to actually happen uh, for it to be a major bubble, uh, you know, back in 2000 we did have the telecom bubble, and and it did involve a lot of capex. But now, the nature of of the companies that are kind of leading this, other than Tesla, are just companies that don't need a lot of capital. And so you could say we're not really destroying actual capex uh, through malinvestment. Although on the alternative energy side, I haven't looked at the numbers. Uh, it could. Very well be the case, but what is happening is that you're having a huge wealth transfer potentially from um, you know company founders and VCs and insiders that have kind of started these um, call it SaaS companies just uh, as a as a catchall to those insiders and VCs from uh, your average. Americans who are uh, the retail investor that are paying, you know, 50 times revenue for some of these companies now. And uh, so you're not destroying capital in that sense, but you are having a wealth transfer in the exact direction in which, you know, wealth inequality has been going already. And, you know, we'll just have to see what broader ramifications that might have. Uh, but just psychologically, it feels like some parts of the market are ridiculously frothy, and so you know, trying to understand it rationally, uh, I don't know that it even makes sense in some cases. Um, you know, like Tesla, yeah, you could say they have a great future ahead. It's a, things are moving to EV, but you got to somehow link that to the price you're paying and the valuation that's implied. And, um, you know, the bull cases that I've seen, it's very hard to link it to anything that makes sense uh, on the numbers side.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the, the prices, you know, when you're paying 40 times or 45 times or 50 times for very, very big businesses, I'm not sure where the growth comes from. You know, that tech sector, Microsoft, which has grown from $20 billion in sales to 150 had a long runway to grow at a very high rate. How do you grow that business from 150? Well, I mean, you talk about the, the the total addressable market in the cloud, which is a huge number. I mean, at some point you play around with the numbers, and all of a sudden, 100 percent of total U.S. profitability for the S and P 500 is enduring for the benefit of a handful of businesses. And I think you know something's got to give. In the meantime, the real problem is you pay 45 times for that group of five companies, where you pay 50 times for Visa and Mastercard. You know, you're looking at two to two and a half percent earnings yields. To your point, John, you've robbed your future return. Um, and if you, and if you're in a world where you think you're going to make, you know, 10% returns, which has been the average for the, the broad stock market back to, you know the 1920s, when you look at it returns through a very long-term lens, you know, maybe you shouldn't expect that much in a world of zero interest rates, but you know, at two and a half percent earnings yields, there's very little margin for error. And you know, that would not have been the case four or five years ago. You know, that would not have been the case with the companies that made up the Nasdaq in 96 or 97, you know, they were expensive, but they weren't nosebleed crazy. At the peak, when the NASDAQ traded at 5,000 and the market cap of six and a half or $7 trillion was almost as great as the New York Stock Exchange, that was insanity. And you didn't get back to even for 15 years. I don't know that 15 years is the right number, but I would bet you that if we have this conversation or when we have this conversation 15 years down the road, that we have robbed by paying the premiums that we're paying for a lot of these growth businesses, you have robbed so much return that at best you're flat for somewhere between five years to 10 years. And in some cases, 15 years, you know, you pay $120 billion for Shopify doing 2 billion in sales. How, how long does it take to grow into the valuation? And in the meantime, what can go wrong? You know, where, where's, where's the disruption at the next iteration of business cycle? I, I just think man alive, you're, 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 everything is priced where it has to go right. And the last time I, Look, I, I, I peered through the lens of just the broad, you know, markets. The last time everything was priced for perfection and then some was the late 1990s. And, you know, it wound up being a really bad experience for those that, that were willing to play the game up to the bitter end.
3: Yeah, for a little bit, i had been saying this, uh, the path from 40 times price to sales to 40 times PE is a bumpy one, because inevitably, that's where all these growth companies are going to start having to uh, justify what they're capable of. And now the bar has been raised on the price to sales side. But one of the interesting things to think about, again, on this this, uh, contrasting things now, I mean... Uh, You know, obviously, Buffett owned Coke and thought about the valuation there. But today he owns Apple, which I think most recently is one of the hallmarks of things getting a little too far ahead of themselves, maybe up there in a league with some of the uh, price to sales stories. So you know, it's definitely interesting to think about. Um, I wanted to make sure before uh, we moved on from 99, and, you know, I know you guys might have a little more to say, but to call out a book that I think is phenomenal and really helped me think about some of the past trends and, and you know, build some of the contrast. Um, Bull, A History of the Boom and Bust, uh, 1982 to 2004 by Maggie Mayhart. It's really phenomenal, really excellent read. It reads like a novel. It's kind of fun. And a lot of names that you'll see today uh, in a different light, so I definitely uh recommend that, and
1: that uh, is a great book I agree,
3: yeah, yeah,
1: I love that book uh,
3: and and just maybe a,
2: a one point on on Apple, you know what 's and and Chris, this goes to your point on some of these businesses just being so huge that it 's hard to see how they keep up the those growth rates, and with apple um you know this is a Company that's now valued at seven to eight times sales. And even that, I guess, relatively low level of sales compared to what it will have to be to justify the current valuation, even at this level of sales of like under 300 billion, there is huge resistance to Apple in the industry because of their app store take and and just their strong arm tactics. So, I mean, where are another billion, where's another billion in sales going to come from when already, you know, powerful developers and so forth are pushing back very hard. And the only reason why this hasn't broken yet is that it really is a monopoly, but there, something's going to have to give, and I just don't see how Apple's going to grow sales to a trillion and beyond, given what's already happening
0: in terms of you know how their sales are coming together today. Yeah, I think the Coke comparison is a great one, John. You go back to 98, and Coke was 45% of the stock portfolio within the insurance business. The insurance businesses collectively were worth most of Berkshire Hathaway at the time. They hadn't made material investments in energy and, and in the railroad. At that point, they had, hadn't bought a lot of the subsidiaries. And here you are with Apple at $2.2 trillion market cap, $300 billion in sales, $60 billion in profits. Berkshire owns somewhere around 6% of it. It's half the stock portfolio, again. it's just like Coca-Cola was. And since then, you know, the Gen Re transaction wound up to be brilliant, and it allowed Berkshire to diversify, diversify away from Coca-Cola. But in the subsequent years, Mr. Buffett said, one of my biggest mistakes was not selling Coca-Cola. I can tell you as big as our position is in Berkshire Hathaway, my prayer time at night when I get down on my knees at my bedside is now directly exclusively directed toward I pray, I pray, I pray Omaha is selling down the Apple position. That's all I've got to say about that.
3: Yeah, Apple confounds me, but I think it also, I, I guess I could talk about Apple a lot on the, these sorts of things. It confounds me too, insofar as like Google has a better growth profile for the next two to three years and is trading at lower multiples on earnings and price to sales than than Apple. So it's like, you know, there's something uniquely special about where it is right now as maybe a pool of liquidity in contrast to a company in stock or as a name or whatever it may be but I'm with you there. I mean, I definitely, I, I would think the Coke lesson applies here and you, you kind of feed the market gods at least something into this. You could say one of the interesting contrasts too for for Coke with Berkshire back then versus now, Coke would have been a little harder to sell. Apple, like I spoke about this, I can't remember which one, which of our podcasts, but three days of average volume would let Berkshire exit entirely. And that's pretty freaking unique. You know, It's a massive position, but you could really just kind of hit a button and, and say goodbye uh, like that. All right, well,
2: let's uh, move on to our third uh, topic of the day. Phil, you have something uh, interesting prepared for us. We are all ears.
1: Sure. Thanks, John. So hopefully you guys have had a chance to look at this. What I thought I'd do and see how it works in an audio format here is what I call blind valuation, which as far as I know was first done by Ben Graham all those years ago as a teaching tool. And it's one of the best teaching tools and thought experiments I've ever come across. I do this in the MBA class that I teach. um, And I do it just on my own time. I'm a lot of fun at cocktail parties and and whatnot. It's a a fun way to kind of play almost a riddle um, and get people's opinion on things without allowing the narrative and the psychology of the individual company company to come into play at first. I think a lot of us probably do this, or if not, it's a great practice to take a look at something and try to value it without knowing what the market price is in advance. And this is kind of a, a take on this where you, where you have the financials and kind of the profile of the company in front of you, but you don't know what the company is and, and you're com- coming up with what you might pay for it in a broad range. So I sent this over to to Chris and Elliot and John and uh, i 'll describe the two companies now um, they 're both based in the u s headquartered domiciled traded publicly listed um, they 've both been around for quite a while uh, they 're both in for the be- for the most part functionally identical industries, which technically is classified as specialty stores when When we identify them at the end of this that 'll become more clear um, in the case of company a versus company B. I, I think the most salient difference is sales growth. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the what people are willing to pay for revenue growth right now. So company A is trading, we'll, we'll, we'll call it, we'll just use round numbers, about 20 billion of sales. Um, and that number is basically dead flat over the past five or six years. That number should be flat to down slightly this year compared to 2019, but quite profitable. Um, you know mid single digit operating margins uh, tons and tons of free cash flow i mean averaging you know anywhere from three quarters of a billion to a billion dollars of free cash flow on that twenty billion dollars of sales, um, quite good returns uh, on equity because they 've been quite prudent with their balance sheet you know in the fifteen to twenty percent range, a little bit of, of net debt on the balance sheet, certainly four or five billion dollars in net debt and what 's interesting is they 've actually been plowing back a lot of their free cash flow under repurchasing shares. So the share count has fallen quite a bit over the recent four or five years. Where you contrast that to company B, where the sales growth has just absolutely exploded, gone from a few hundred million dollars a few years ago, five or six years ago, to now potentially 5 billion or more this year. Um, but what's interesting is, is those sales have exploded not only are margins still negative, but in a lot of ways they 're not really looking like they 're going to turn the corner anytime soon and Because the company is quite quite capital intensive as well the the free cash flow uh, gap the negativity of the free cash flow is is accelerating um, and so and likewise, the financing need has continued to increase over the years um, there 's a dual class share structure here. Um, the shares outstanding have uh, almost quintupled over this period of time and the debt has gone from basically zero to well over a billion five at this point now. So um, guys, I don't know if you have the the numbers in front of you. It'd obviously be far easier for you to do this than anyone listening out there. We can put the the blank uh, financials out um, in the show notes or I'll put it up on Twitter or something and people can look at exactly what you guys are seeing right now. But does anybody want to be the guinea pig and kind of throw out there? observations on this or what they might put as a kind of rough range evaluation
0: on the well, company. Phil, I think the I companies. figured it out.
1: Um. Okay. That's even better. If you know exactly what the companies are, that would be impressive. And again, right. this doesn't, by the way, I should have said, I did use the real numbers a lot of times because, you know, students can be enterprising people. I will change the numbers by, you know, shaving a decimal here or there or something. But if you actually looked up the numbers or just you know, reverse search the numbers. You could figure out exactly what these companies are. So, if you did that, please recuse yourself. But otherwise, if you know what the two companies are, that would be great.
0: No, actually, I, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'm almost sure the one you put on the right. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure I know what that is, and I could guess at the other one just based on the size of the business and the and the margin structure. But you know, you go through the finance. I think this is great. I did this in one of my client letters with the with the trucking business that Berkshire bought from. Uh, Walmart a few years ago to kind of demonstrate what really mattered in investing was return on capital. And you, know, you could take a business with really low operating and profit margins. And as long as the capital invested in the business was sufficiently low relative to sales, you could generate a good return. And so Phil's example here are, are a couple businesses that have, well, in, in the case of your company B, negative operating margins, explosive revenue growth, uh, actually accelerating losses. You didn't put in the share count, but my first question would have been, how dilutive has this thing been in terms of number of shares to finance the growth? Because it's clearly bleeding cash for the time being. But you look sorry, at... sorry, Yeah, that's more- actually in my
1: spreadsheet. I should have, but it's uh, the, the share count, it's the dual share class, which is what's interesting as well. The, the publicly traded share count has gone from 15 million um, in 2015, 16, 17 to almost seventy seven zero million. Mm-hmm. Like I said, four or five x over the past four or five years, and and meanwhile, the the B shares, which are owned by the the controlling shareholders, um, has actually declined slightly over that period. But the the net, the total dilution um, is obviously still staggering to the public shareholders.
3: And it appears there's no acquisitions in the story. It's just pure investment in the business. Yeah, which would be a
0: good question? Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's correct. I, Phil, I look at your company A with with what would have been very consistent, kind of 4% operating margins, um, net margins less than that. And, you know, you've only got a handful of industries that would jump out, you know, some kind of distributor, a retailer, like a grocer, you know, something on the order of that. And so, you know, the, you know that's the first place you go. The, the Both businesses are not very, are not at least, you know, with with the figures here are not very asset intensive. So, you know, your company A generating what had been about $21 billion in revenues on total assets of about $10 billion. So at two for one, a couple billion in intangibles. So there, to your point, Elliot, you would not see a lot of growth because that intangibles number hasn't grown at all. Company B hasn't made any acquisitions. You've put no intangibles on the books. You know, returns on equity uh, are really good, you know, kind of mid to high teens for for company A. you know i've spent 30 years with the value line pages looking at just the numbers in the boxes and so you know my eye goes toward progression of revenues progression of the various margin structures the capital structure and so you know, you very quickly without knowing what the business is can kind of weed down you know kind of drill down to any number of businesses so i only because i i looked at at carvana late last year my wife was going over you know they were talking about putting in one of their elevators uh, about a, a driver or a three wood away from our house, you know, they're typically, they put those elevators in, you know, where they deliver their cars with a coin in kind of light industrial areas off a freeway. And they're really billboards. Um, So I looked at this thing and, you know, the dilution from share count, I I think these are both um, auto retailers. And so I would guess based on the figures that Carvana is the one on the right. And I don't know, I I would, I'd throw out a Penske on, on the left, but it could be any other Auto guys. I could be totally off. I mean, you know, you know, the growth on company B could easily be a SaaS software company kind of financing its growth, but you don't see the incremental drive on
3: no gross profit margin too. So that's, uh,
0: on, yeah, on the gross right. margin, wouldn't even be near as high as the softwares. Um,
3: the gross margins yeah. for context were negative uh, in 2015 and they are in 2020 uh, showing about 13% gross profit margin. Um, Yeah,
0: because because they're in the same industry, you eliminate software because the gross margins on Company A were kind of in the kind of mid-teens level, where you know your softwares are going to be north of fifty generally.
3: Yeah, and Company A looks like they did make an acquisition early in the period to give them like one point two billion in revenue on three hundred million in growth and intangibles, and they've since lost all that incremental revenue. Um, but it doesn't appear like extremely cyclical from 2016 through 2019. It was basically flat revenue with no new no new growth and in intangibles. And I mean, I know off the top of my head, the, the um, auto cycle had peaked at that time, though it didn't really like drop precipitously, but perhaps that might have come in. I don't know. Maybe a dealer might have had that. And uh, yeah, I'm really stuck on the margins of Company B, though. Like you would think if you, if, if you add an extra 5.1 billion in sales and you have some high degree of fixed, cro- fixed cost within embedded in your uh, COgs, um, you'd scale gross profit margins far more than they have, and it's just not showing up. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think instead of trying to guess the companies, I was trying to think what I'd pay for each of these companies respectively.
1: Yeah. That's, that's also a good way of doing this. That's a great part of the exercise.
3: Yeah. And so, I mean, like on a, I got stuck on, they made an acquisition and they've since eroded all the incremental sales from that. They have like, I don't know, their EBIT to gross. Like I I was thinking similarly to Chris, that there's something like distributor like to this, but their EBIT to gross isn't. You know, otherworldly, so there's not that much you know, it's kind of it kind of like straddles the line between it is and it isn't distributor like. Cash flow's been pretty, pretty nice. It actually got better as sales came in. Um, so that's something interesting, so they could wind down a little bit of their uh, actually, but it doesn't look like they drew down their working capital considerably. Um, so, you know, when I think about what I'd want to pay for this, like it looks like on the low end, they did 630 million of no Pat in 2018 on the high end, they came into this period in 2015 with, uh, you know, 740 million of no Pat. I mean, maybe I'd pay something like, uh, five to seven times on the high end, but I'd prefer to pay it off a foot lower, uh period if it is cyclical. I mean, there's definitely some kind of cyclicality in there. Company B is one of those things I would totally need to know more, like the composition of like, you know, within their OpEx, and they don't have much room from their gross profitability to support their OpEx, like to what extent are they investing in marketing or RD? Like is there something unique to their business that they're investing in there? Like do they have a unique sales culture and go to market strategy on the sales side? Or do they have some like Intellectual property um, uh, that that their R and D has been a big source of investment, but like they could really start scaling, especially the opex. Considering there's not much scale available in their gross profitability, you know, like uh, saying a number I'd pay for this business is like almost impossible. It's hard to think I'd pay a penny above their their total assets, so like three billion dollars for five point two billion dollars of sales so I'm gonna stick with three billion dollars I didn't give a number for for uh company a but like let's say um what uh so so what did I say I said like five to seven times uh their no pat um call it like three and a half to four billion dollars uh for that
0: company yeah i I would say you know with b Given given the cash burn, you know, not unlike a biotech, uh, you know, if you've got a business that that achieves scale at some point, you got to figure out where you kind of reach normal normal maturity and a normal margin structure. And so, if you're you know if you're running you know negative operating margins of still seven percent, you know, admittedly better than the twenty seven percent you show for two thousand and fifteen. There's no level of free cash profitability. I assume all of this working capital has come from the equity raises you talked about. You know, they've they've taken on, you know, a fair amount of debt. Net debt is $1.2 billion. The, you know, so the company's, you know, equity of $620 million. You don't break out the equity number. So the retained earnings have got to be a big negative number over the life of the firm. So they've, they've, they've still not generating cash. To me, you've got to say on the five billion dollar number. Uh, you know how much more capital does it take to get to some level of profitability, and then figure out what the margin structure is. You know, if 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 you believe that this is going to grow into, you know, maybe a, a a margin structure of a company A, since you put these businesses in the same industry, you know, trying to value company A initially makes more sense. So if you've got a four percent operating margin business, let's say these net income numbers, two thousand and twenty is clearly hit by the by the COVID but if you take that 451 million net and 600 earnings before tax in 19 those numbers really have not grown for the prior 5 years very little growth in this business if you got a growing business that did a 2% net margin business and a 4 operating margin business you know I would pay a third of sales for that business so on 2019 revenues of 21 billion you know sales would be um, you know, sales down by looks like 10 or 15%. That's the COVID. You might pay or you might value this thing at 7 billion and I would pay, you know, 70% of that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay much more than four or $5 billion for this one. That's slight premium to equity, equity of $3 billion. They earn what have been kind of mid-teens returns. So, you know, if, if you've got a growing business, you'd pay three times equity for a growing business, but you don't see a lot of growth here. But again, you don't know if they've, divested any subsidiaries, if they've sold some businesses. You'd have to know a lot more about the color behind why that sales number growth is stagnant. If it really is an auto retailer and you're coming off peak SAR three or four years ago, well, that would explain the flat top line uh, simply because unit sales in the industry have been in decline for a couple, three years. So I'd back into evaluation on B. You know, I tend to not own businesses that, that are not generating free cash. So I'd have a problem with this. I bet you if it's Carvana, you know, it's trading at some stupid number like $100 billion or $50 billion, kind of 10 to 20 times sales. And TBD on whether you've got a scalable business here. I know they they talk about advantages of not having as much money tied up in in land and, and working capital. But I don't know. I mean, if you follow the business model, if, if it really is Carvana, I'm wasting a lot of airspace here if, if 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 I'm totally off on the industry. You can take the car and drive it for two weeks and then send it back I don't know. I'm, I, I wonder if this is a legit business with real scale or if the accounting is pretty aggressive. I know the guy that started Carvana was uh, a convicted felon or the father of the guy that started it was a convicted felon. So, you know, if, if, if you own B Phil, I feel bad, uh, if I'm wrong, if it's Carvana, <laughs> but I've looked at it and I, and I wonder if, um, but you know, you know, that's the approach is, um, is 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 what drives the top line is the is the margin structure normalized at these levels or or is it aberrantly depressed or, or or overstated so you know a lot remains to be seen with with some of the granular data but yeah i'd go with uh i, I think elliot's you know you're you're roughly on um you know you pay you know four or five billion dollars for a, a little premium equity and about a third of sales 20 percent to 30 33 percent of sales let's say and b is uh Totally depends on the scale. You know, if it's really going to be profitable like this, um, you know, you look out, you know, five years, let's say the thing's doing 20 billion in revenues, kind of 4X today. Uh, If it's doing a 2% net margin on, you know, 10 billion in sales, um, you pay, uh, given the growth, you might pay half a sales for it. You know, Costco, a business that does a 2.2% net margin today, for the first time in its history, I think as of yesterday, traded at 100% of sales they do a 2% margin. You know, it's a lean margin business. And despite the growth and the high returns on capital, the stock in its entire history has never traded a hundred percent of sales. You know, these, these, the, the, the businesses that comprise the industry you've got presented here, you know, or follow a similar margin structure, you know, similar, similar level of capital and asset intensity. And so you know, I wouldn't pay a big premium to sales, but I bet because you're in this 1999 new era, uh, I bet you B trades for a big fancy multiple, and if it is a SaaS company, which it probably isn't, then it would trade at you know twenty times sales or thirty times sales.
1: John, do you want to weigh in, or do you? Yeah, I'll weigh
0: in quickly.
2: Uh, On company A, I'm kind of with the guys. Uh, You know, I looked at the FCF um, to kind of give me a yardstick for the valuation. It's averaged around, I guess, nine hundred million or so over the last four years, but net income has been a lot lower. Around 400 million. So, and just given that there isn't any growth in that business or or kind of flatlined uh, sales, I'd imagine that FCF would have to start converging with uh, the net income number. So that's probably going to come down. Um, And they do have uh, four and a half billion of net debt. So, you know, I'd probably look at this company at one times book value, maybe a little bit more, you know, so also in that four or so billion, uh, range on the, uh, on the equity there. Company B, I honestly can't do anything with cause I, that business is worthless to me just on the numbers themselves. I mean, if I owned this company, I'd be bankrupt. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know they they must have a great story that's allowed them to um, finance their growth with uh, apparently net with debt. I mean their debt has gone from eighty five million in twenty fifteen to one point seven billion in twenty twenty, and despite using so much debt, um, Phil, you mentioned that their shares outstanding has have also quadrupled. It their- does,
1: yeah. You can see it in the book value, but I should have put the share count. I it's in my it's a row of the spreadsheet that's hidden from you guys i should have put it in there yeah there've been equity issuances consistently to so to,
0: they've clearly
2: you know, so. been very good at telling their story and uh, raising capital um so you know kudos to the insiders for that wouldn't surprise me if they've sold some stock along the way you know the the, the one positive thing about Ca- company b uh, besides the top line growth is the operating margin loss or or negative um, number has come down uh, over time, although it seems to be flat from 2019 to 2020 at about minus 7% operating margin. But presumably, that's going to keep coming down. And at some point, this company turns profitable. But for me, it's very, very difficult to put any kind of valuation uh, on that business.
0: Phil, I have a question for you. Sure. And I'm I'm hedging <laughs> I'm hedging now my uh my prediction. But and I'm getting I'm just orienting myself to your data. Present value of operating leases, is that the capitalized value of one year's operating number? It, yeah, either the either my estimate
1: of the present value of one year operating or if it's disclosed now. Yeah, so again, it varies over time, but you know.
0: So so rent, uh, so so the rent number is so the 12 million dollars in 2020 rent for company B and the 50 million. For company a, that that is not the one year's operating lease expense that's that's just actual rent that's actual rent expense right uh, well so my so my comment here is if these are indeed auto retailers, either they must own own outright a bunch of the land which you would see in the asset and the debt number or they're just or or they're not using a lot of operating leases because I would think that the land uh, the land, if it were leased, would be, I think your operating lease numbers in both cases would be much larger numbers. That's something that gives me a little bit of pause. Just well, I this. think
1: the the big takeaway here is that you guys are too good and I should have known to not play this game with ringers. It's much different when you play this with first and second year MBA students who haven't done this for a living for many decades. But let me jump into the the big reveal with a quick preamble, which is that Uh, I don't own either one of these. I'm not short anything, let alone I'm not short either one of these. Uh, I generally strongly prefer to criticize by category rather than by name. So no one should take any criticism of either of these too personally. Uh, By no means is this any sort of recommendation, long or short. Either way, for heaven's sake, this is not, this is, is academic and for illustrative purposes only. I mean, it just it, it's just meant to show the, the compare and contrast aspect of this because both companies are somewhat similar and they're very different in some ways that pertain to what we've been talking about a lot. So um, with that in mind, and, and another hilarious wrinkle to this whole thing is that um, I actually went to high school with the CEO of Company B, I, I didn't know him well. I I doubt he remembers me. I can guarantee you he doesn't care what I have to say or think. But I certainly don't wish ill upon either company A or company B, that's for sure. Um, and like I said, I don't have a dog in the fight either way. This is purely for academic and debate purposes. So um, funny enough, Chris is exactly dead spot on company B is in fact Carvana. Um, so I think if there's no other takeaway other than that, it's to show you how good somebody like Chris could be at, at handicapping this sort of thing and, and the breadth of his knowledge and how he can zero in on this sort of game is, is that was extremely impressive. So well done. I'll have to send you a Starbucks gift card or something mm-hmm. as your, as your parting gift. Cause that's, that's very impressive. And uh, yeah, I mean the things that jump out to you are exactly what you guys laid out. So I will not um, belabor that point as well. I will say that as you compare and contrast though, the, the board structure, the capital allocation, the overall governance, um, you know this company has some of has some very smart pro, high profile investors that have obviously done extremely well, and it is very interesting to me as i 've talked with them and debated with them about the the virtues and merits of this company over the year years. very few of them seem to really care or focus about that it 's really just about the narrative and the top line growth, which of course has its merits, but you know you, you talk about the dual class structure you talk about actually the parallel private company and drive time. Most of them don't seem to even care or be aware of it. The the prospectus here is is fascinating reading. Most of them have never heard of Ugly Duckling, which was the the predecessor entity in a lot of ways to this company. Um, So it's just really fascinating. And then the reason I picked company A, um, which is not CarMax, which would be potentially a more direct competitor, um, and would, would make the same point in a lot of ways. But the reason I picked Company A, which is AutoNation, which is that for many, many years, many decades, it was actually the polar opposite um, from an allocation and a governance perspective. Mike Jackson really came at this from a Bill Thorndyke, Will Thorndike outsider's kind of mentality. He had um, Mike Larson from Cascade and Andy Lampert on the board for many years and, and really put on a master class in governance and capital allocation for a long time. Um, and you can see those results here. And so I think the difference is exactly what John said, which is, it's not about, to me at least, which company would you like to own in the public markets? It's about which company would you own if you owned the entire thing. And so if you owned the entire thing and could not sell into the secondary market, which by the way, there were about $180 million of insider sales in this company last week alone at Carvana, that was just named directors and officers. Um, but if you had to own just this entire company A or company B and basically live off of the value of that company for the next 10, 20, 30 years, and in effect, live off of the cash flow and the dividends that it could generate, that's a totally different debate than the beauty contest debate of which company is sexier and which company is growing, which company can kind of sell its story on to, to Wall Street, so to speak, because that's obviously been met with enormous success. So uh, the, the Values that you guys generated. Uh, this was actually as of yesterday, before the big sell-off today. So the market cap of AutoNation was a little over five billion. You guys kind of guessed in the three to four to five billion dollar range. So you really weren't that far off. And you you caveated your your guess on Carvana that it was either too hard or you know or that it was going to be at some crazy level. But yeah, I mean, coming into yesterday, the market cap was pushing forty billion, four zero, so about eight times higher. Um, then AutoNation, despite the obviously glaring differences in size and, and profitability. And, you know, the other interesting thing that I'd point out before I'll, I'll leave it there in the interest of brevity is just that, you know, the, one of the appealing narratives, I think, about a lot of these so-called digital companies is that, you know, they don't require the tangible assets to grow. And in many cases, that's true. But when you get kind of late cycle into some of those narratives, you see that thesis kind of drift. And what I think is so interesting here is that, one, I mean, just about anybody can, can replicate those strategies. It's more about executing on them, in my opinion. And two is that if you look just, for example, at these companies, CarMax actually generates about $2.4 of sales per dollar of tangible assets. Carvana is only about $1.80. It's actually less, like more capital intensive from a tangible asset perspective and again, like if you look at just on enterprise value to sales, I mean, it's obviously off the charts, right? I mean, CarMax is a little under two times, Carvana is eight, nine, 10 times, depending on what you think this year's sales will be and, and going forward and, and AutoNation nations even lower at like about a half a turn of sales. So it's all about, you know, how confident are you? I mean, if Carvana can continue to put up this explosive sales growth and you wake up a few years from now and instead of $5 billion of sales, it's at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion of sales. That's a whole different story, and you know they can potentially finance their way up to that number, and maybe it'll work. But you know that's a very different bet than than a cash flow bet. So, bravo to you guys. You did, did great. I thought that was really fascinating. And and depending on the feedback we get, maybe we'll do another one down the road.
0: Well, bravo to you. I mean, if I could say one thing here, John, that is Phil. I mean, doing this with students is couldn't be a better exercise. Um, it teaches you how to think first about the business and and the numbers and, and very last about the price. I mean, it, you know, if I could give one bit of advice to anybody starting an investment career or young in the profession, it would be not, not to make this a, a, a commercial for value line, but, you know, from day one when they plop me into the library at the bank trust company and, you know, I had access to the Moody's manuals and the S and P manuals and the value line, you know, I've, I've made it a habit over 30 years of investing. Going through the paper versions, I still I still get them in the mail of both the large cap and then the mid and the small cap version uh, of the Value Line tear sheets, and I can't tell you how beneficial it is to just skim through and read through every one of those pages every week. You get 13 editions, so you you know once a quarter you're updating your numbers, so you know every time uh, you know, you scroll through a new one, you're just you're touching on an industry and you're touching on how industries are valued. And it becomes valuable at times when you start to get changes within an industry or you start to get changes in overall market valuation to be grounded in the history of the numbers. I mean, I, I couldn't begin to value a business by looking at a snapshot of just one year or two years worth of financials. I couldn't be a venture capitalist. You know, I'm not good at looking out 10 years. I couldn't do a Carvana five or 10 or 20 years out and figure out at what point does this thing scale into profitability? Because I don't see it. I, my, my brain doesn't think that way. But to have these reference points of the data like you've laid out on the sheet. And I I hope you put these, I hope John, you can put, put this template online. Uh, But if you don't have value line, if you've got access to databases, you know, I I would make a habit of scrolling through as many businesses as as you can, even in, even in this kind of format, I'd add a few things like depreciation and CapEx. Those things are important to me. The number of shares outstanding, which we talked about. I'd want to see if there's a dividend policy or, or a payout ratio over time. And then a little bit more nuanced data on, on the components of working capital. Where are you inventory financed? Where are your receivables, your payables? But you know, the, the data that Phil has on these two pages comparing these businesses, if you can get yourself oriented to linear data over time, I, I find it to be the most useful exercise that, that I've come up with over an entire investing career. I, I agree. And that's, you know, but I will say the, the
1: pushback I most often get on this, because I'm fully in your camp. And so I have to force myself to argue the other side. The, the pushback I get, which is at least partially valid, is that if you're too grounded in the numbers, you kind of miss it. You miss the future or whatever, you know, similar to my old professor who missed Starbucks by overfocusing on things. I mean, I've gone back and read old financials for great companies like Google at IPO or Alphabet. Amazon 20 years ago, Costco 20 or whatever the case may be. I mean you can't overly anchor on where you've been, but I think the point remains that if you can look at these numbers and come up with a number that's off by an order of magnitude to the expensive side then maybe you have a problem, right? So that that I think is an absolutely valid practice than something everybody should do. And again, it's it's all about the magic of balancing the quantitative and the qualitative. And that's where I think it's so fascinating in a case like this, you just completely eliminate the qualitative and you do that either first or second, but you do them both before you look at the price and try to bring them together and say, you know, from a triangulation, does this make sense? Or is there something really off?
0: Yeah, I think the beauty about looking at linear data, the way the way that I do at least, is four times a year, I've got to form an opinion about a business and an industry. And what you realize over time is, if if you are grounded to your point in the trailing data, and you're grounded into what you think a normalized margin structure is, you make mistakes and you don't catch when an industry is changing. But when you force yourself to go back and reassess what you were thinking three and four and five years ago, how did Starbucks, for instance, drive its net profit margin from kind of mid-high single digits up to what's now 13%. How have they driven the returns on capital from mid-20s up to the 30s? So it's through that lens of looking at the numbers over time, both retrospectively and prospectively, that forces you to grow to an understanding of business valuation. Yeah.
2: And Phil, I think one advantage of doing it the way we just did, uh, thanks to you, is that uh, you know when you look at the num just the pure numbers on carvana and then you find out its valuation actually the exercise we did tells you how much you need to focus on the subjective and qualitative exactly. aspects
1: that's and, right yeah i think it's enormously helpful to kind of do it in reverse right take any problem and flip it upside down and and what are the expectations baked into the current price? And are you that much more optimistic or bullish than the expectations that are already baked in? I I totally agree.
2: Yeah. Great. Well, we are going to make this uh, available for download in the show notes. So maybe someone even wants to run this uh, as a as an exercise at their Saturday night party or in classroom, <laughs> we would be delighted to have the podcast used in uh, any educational uh, fashion. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, this was a great uh, episode. Thanks also everyone uh, for listening. We'll be right back with you next week. Goodbye now.